Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Monday, June 22nd. This is episode, I don't even know, 124 or something like that. I'll figure it out when I post the show notes today. Um... But uh, today we're going to do another one of our listener question shows. i got ten questions jotted down on a little piece of paper here for me. And uh, safe to read them today because, once again, I have my son Matt in the, the uh, pilot seat. And I'm sitting in the co-pilot seat. And in a car, you don't get to control anything in the co-pilot seat. So uh, I can give you guys my undivided attention even though we are mobile today. Uh, I don't know how much of a difference that will make. Anyway, uh, before we get into today's questions, let's go ahead and do some house cleaning. Number one, I always want to point out you should support our advertisers. Uh, they're good guys. They uh, support the show uh, with uh, with a financial contribution, and they are vetted by our moderators on the forum. In other words, when I have a prospective advertiser say, I want to be uh, featured on your site, mentioned in your show, uh, I put them in front of my moderators, and if two or more moderators object and say there's a problem with this advertiser, we turn them down, turn them away. Uh, today's advertiser of the day, SOE Tactical Gear. John Wills' organization. Check those guys out. He makes some of the best equipment in the industry. Biggest criticism comes from his competitors who say he overbuilds his equipment. That tells you something about the quality that he puts into it. Uh, the next thing I wanted to tell you about, I did a little, if you're on my email distribution list, you got an email from me Saturday. If not, you'll want to check this out. I did a video Friday night. I kind of got inspired after our anniversary show to go out and do something, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And uh, I was on YouTube just bouncing around looking at all kinds of different videos. And I saw a video with the uh, song World from Five for Fighting in it. And um, I was watching some uh, soldier videos as well. And I just got kind of inspired. And I did a picture slideshow video of our soldiers uh, spending time with children all over the world. Some of them here. A few of the pictures are from Honduras and Panama. A lot of them, as you might imagine, are from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, But it's available on the Survival Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, You can find that by going to the survivalpodcast.com. Scroll about halfway down the site, look in the center column, and you'll see a link to our YouTube channel. And I'll put a link to this video in particular uh, from today's show notes. I think you might really enjoy it. Um, next, I want to let you know, and I'll put a link to the show here as well. Uh, yesterday, I was a guest host on the Brew Crazy Home Brew Podcast uh, with Johnny Max, Raybo, and the Queen, and it was a pretty cool show. And we talked about making beer, and we also talked a lot about survivalism. For those of you that want to start making your own beer, wine, mead, it is a great show to listen to. Number one homebrewing podcast in the world. And uh, we also talked a lot about shit hit the fan scenarios. We talked about some real things that these folks have dealt with being down in the Houston area and having to deal with three hurricanes in the past four years. So uh, I think it was a good show. And again, I'll put a link in the show notes. Last but not least on the house cleaning, uh, if you think you get more than a quarter's worth of value per episode, consider joining the member support Brigade and get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, let me tell you one thing about the Member Support Brigade. Almost immediately after you sign up, join, make your payment, uh, 
if you do it online anyway, you should get an email with your uh, username and password. If you don't get that email, check your spam filter. If it's not in there, email me immediately. Don't wait a couple days. It's not coming later. It either comes right away or, you know, it didn't get filtered. It got blocked uh, or something went wrong with the technology. You think your payment went through and it didn't. Send me an email right away. Tell me the PayPal email address that you've used if you've paid by PayPal. If you've got a confirmation back from PayPal but not from me, forward the confirmation from PayPal. It will help me correct your issue faster and sometimes what happens is people use PayPal, but they don't have it verified, and they're using, like, say, an e-check method or something like that. I don't really understand that because I don't do it. Uh, but it may take up to 48 hours after you make payment or longer for it to be active if you're using that method. If you let me know in the payments inside of PayPal, I usually just manually set you up. So there's a little bit longer house cleaning than normal for today. But uh, let's get on with things and, uh, and rock on with the show now and take on your questions. Uh, guy sent me an email said, hey, Jack, uh, you answered a question recently about oil prices and gas prices. And what you said is that it was your instinct that it was a weak dollar that was driving up the price of oil. But then when you checked into it, you found that the dollar hadn't in the last 90 days significantly weakened against any of the other major currencies. So... You seem to be hitting, hinting at what would be termed a global inflation on the price of oil as a commodity. Is that what you were saying? And if so, is that much worse than just inflation against the dollar? It is what I was hinting at. I wasn't quite ready to dig into that topic yet because I wasn't sure that that's what was going on. And yes, it's worse. I'm still not positive that that's what we're seeing, but it sure looks like it. And, and let me explain to you what, what, what's really going on here. What this guy so astutely is pointing out is, well, just because the dollar is not being devalued against the euro or the pound or the yen or anything else like that, doesn't mean that we're, we're free from the ravages of inflation. The, all that inflation is is when you print more money, the new money sucks value from the old money. Okay? As the money supply grows, the value of the individual unit declines. It's basic economics 101. If everybody in the world does it at the same time, everybody's currency gets devalued equally at the same time. All right, now, we're doing it more, but we're putting some checks in place to stall off the effects. And we're being hit harder by the global recession than everybody else is. Nobody's telling you that, but France, Germany, Europe, Brazil, Argentina, all these countries all over the world, they're in a global recession as well, but they're not taking it as hard as we are. Because of that, they are... You know, printing less money, but the effect is less at the same time. Because, in other words, inflation is being held in check in the United States right now because people aren't spending a lot of money. As soon as they start spending it, it'll run away. That's, that's the bubble that's being created right now. But since everybody's printing money, and the, the, the recession has kind of leveled the inflation check across the board, what that, that means is we're devaluing everybody's fiat currency, not just our own. And, you know, Johnny, Johnny Max actually brought this up, too, when I was on his show, and he said, hey, uh, is there any nation not doing this? Is there any place I can put my money right now where they're not just printing more money and devaluing the currency? And the answer is no, there isn't. 
I don't know of it. Now, if you know of one, if there's some little micronation somewhere that has 100% gold-backed currency, please tell me who it is. I'd love to know that. I don't know if they throw all my money in there, but I'd like to know about it. It'd be interesting. And even with, I've talked about this before, you can't just throw your money into gold and silver or a, just a straight commodities portfolio because since the money is manipulated by the money handlers, you don't know which way they're going to push things next. Now, sometimes they may try to push it somewhere and fail, but they're always trying to push. So you have to stay diversified in everything you do. But a global inflation spiral could be way worse than a U.S. dollar inflation. Think about it this way. If a hurricane hits Florida, it's bad. If some giant freak hurricane hit half of the United States and wiped out half the United States with the force uh, that it generally is only reserved to the, the, the shorelines, it would be worse, right? Well, inflation across the entire United States is bad. Inflation across the globe is a lot worse. I haven't found anybody writing on this yet. I'm not able to verify this through any kind of a third-party source thing. So I'm hesitant to really talk about it too much. But I'm going to dig into it more. If I can get enough meat on it, I'm going to talk to you about what the implications could be in a show later this week. Well, let's go ahead and move on to another topic for now. guy wrote in to me. He lives near Tucson, Arizona. And looking for ways to uh, to maximize the use of a little bit of rain and water that they do get there. Since you just can't ever seem to store enough water based on, you know, natural water production. And if they ever lose water from the city or what have you, then they really got a problem. And do I have any resources for long-term uh, desert water survival? And I don't know that they're really survival resources, but I have uh, a real suggestion for you and something to watch. There's a video by Bill Mollison uh, about permaculture in very arid climates. And um, I've posted links to the, these videos before, but I'll do one to, just to this video today. And he goes all over the world, basically, and shows people you know, growing things in deserts. So it's not really about how to maximize your rain catch to put it in a cistern or a tank, but it's more about how to maximize the water that does fall that you don't manage to get into a cistern or into a tank to actually build soil in a desert and to create uh, good growing conditions in the desert for your plants so that you don't have to use the water you do catch for irrigation and you can use most of the water that you catch for personal use. And uh, there's some pretty interesting things in there, but I can tell you this. What it all usually comes down to is shaping the, the earth itself, putting in swale systems on contour, so that if you have an elevation of, let's say, 400 feet, you put in a swale ditch exactly at 400 feet and it follows the 400-foot line. doesn't matter how many times it bends or twists. You stay on that contour. Uh, he actually goes to some of uh, these swales that were created by the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps during the Depression that have been there for, you know, almost 80 years now, I guess, and um, no one's touched them. And there are these huge green belts running right through the middle of the desert. So you've got just desolate conditions on both sides of them. And then you've got these swaths of green. And that's all that they are. No one's taking care of them. No one's cared for them. There's another guy in this video. It's pretty cool. He has this machine. And it basically, he just drives it and makes these little pock marks in the ground. A very specific size and shape of little pock marks. 
And every time it does rain, those little pockmarks funnel the water into little pockets. And actually, he's created these green spots in the desert just by driving this machine over them. And then the other thing is any seeds from any plants that land in these areas, these pockmarks funnel the seeds down to the bottom instead of having them blow away with the desert dust. So those are uh, that's, a, that's a good video I would point out to you. The other thing I'd say is make sure you're absolutely maximizing every drop of rain you get from rain catch systems. It may be worth putting up some outbuildings just to have more roof space to catch water from. Um, I don't know exactly where you're at. Putting a well in is probably not a big option where you're at or you would have already done it. But whenever you're somewhere where it's very, very dry, don't assume there's no water underground. There may be big pockets or uh, some, some aquifers available. And if you're in a place where they don't do agriculture, those aquifers might be a lot more stable. So uh, check into that as well. That's really all I can give you on that one for now. Uh, I'm not an expert at you know living in the desert. It's not something I've ever really wanted to do. And I guess that means maybe I haven't done enough, enough research on it as I should have. Um, so let's go ahead on to the next question. Guy sends me an email says, Hey, Jack, what do you think about using PCP air rifles for hunting? Um, PCP is a pre-charged pneumatic pellet, uh, which basically means that you've got a rifle with an air reservoir in it, and either using an air compressor or a pump, you charge up that air reservoir, and then you have anywhere between 5 to 10 shots at a you know a given velocity range before you start to see a decline. Um, I think they're a big improvement over, you know, when you break barrel spring action uh, in some ways. Uh, they're a lot lighter usually than, like, the larger gamos and beamons and things. So you could get a lot of them in the weights of around 5 to 6 pounds. That puts them on par with a 22. And one of the big reasons I've always said, if, if you can legally carry a 22 long rifle, I would much prefer that over a pellet gun, is you get more range, you, you get more knockdown power, you get more lethality, and generally speaking, the average 22 weighs a hell of a lot less than the average gamo air rifle. Uh, so the pre-charged kind of take that advantage away, and you end up with weapons that are, you know, five to six pounds. You're in that 22 uh, rifle range for weight. I think they're they're good used within their limits. The problem with any pellet rifle is range. Uh, you can at 20 yards, uh, damn near. If you shoot a, a squirrel in the head with a 22 pellet rifle, pushing a pellet at eight nine hundred feet per second, uh, or you know a much more powerful 22, the reaction's the same. The head blows open and the squirrel dies. Right? I mean that's that's just a fundamental reality. Now you move out to 50 yards, uh, even if you even if the pellet's got some decent energy left in it because you've got a really high-end rifle, you start to get a lot more drift because that pellet, you know, weighs less than half of what that, that slug from that 22 weighs. So even a very mild breeze will start to push your pellets off, especially when you get into uh, dealing with, you know, the like the 177 caliber stuff, that's even more affected by wind. So there's a range limitation there. The advantage to them for a survivalist or for shit at the fan is the only thing you have to carry is pellets. And you can carry a lot more pellets uh, with a lot less weight and space than you can carry 22 ammunition. If you really wanted to, I guess you could either fabricate or come up somewhere and buy some molds to make your own pellets, and you would pretty much never run out of ammunition. As long as you had something to stick in the barrel and a pump to put air in the weapon, it would still be usable and functional, which you can't say the same thing for, uh, for ammunition. We've all seen the recent effects of ammunition shortages. So there's some advantages there. That said, I'd rather take a 22, lay away about three or four bricks of shells for it, and uh, I think it's a better all-around weapon. 
uh, for, a, for everything from defense to gathering game. From a standpoint, if you want to challenge yourself more, hey, man, that's a great thing. That's the same as bow hunting. Sure, a 306 is a better weapon uh, than a bow and arrow for shooting deer because it has a greater range. But I love to bow hunt, so if it's that's your motivation, that's fine. The one thing I'll caution you with is your laws locally. Uh, there are some states that will not allow the use of an air rifle for hunting. So make sure that you're complying with your local laws uh, or you can end up on the wrong side of the law and that's never any fun, especially hunting. Game wardens uh, at times can tend to be real pricks uh, in certain situations. I guess there's some really good ones out there, so I shouldn't say that, but I've run into at least one of them that was a real jackass and uh, did some things he didn't have to do just because he could. So uh, I'd watch yourself on that. Uh, next guy asked me kind of a question. He says, do you think we'll ever see people migrate based on political beliefs? So I guess he means before the shit hits the fan. And what he said is, like survivalists moving to the mountains and liberals moving to the cities. Well, one, I think your question is a little bit slanted because, believe it or not, there's a lot of liberal survivalists. There really are. Um, in fact, I would call them extreme liberal survivalists. And uh, some of the liberal survivalists are actually real liberals, too, folks. The liberals that existed before the progressive movement and all these people that think they're liberals today aren't liberals. They're progressives, which is a nice way of saying socialist, barring on communism. Uh, so before you ask questions like that, you might want to find out what the definition of a real liberal is. Uh, the next thing is... In essence, if I just answer the question based on its spirit, it's already happened. How many survivalists, real survivalists, do you know that live in the cities? Some, but a lot more want to live in the rural areas. And most of your, you know, your modern-day liberals, what people mean when they use the word today, okay, the people that are, you know, believe in the Al Gore, you know, Church of Global Warming, and think Barack Obama is Superman, or like God, as one commentator recently said on TV. And yeah, that really happened. I don't remember what show that was on, but it was absolutely appalling. He was a, the editor of like U.S. News or something like that. Was on an interview on a cable news network and said Obama is really more like God in this situation in bringing people together. Alright, so those people, they live in cities right now, so this has already happened. Um, I just thought this was an interesting question. Maybe it'll spur some discussion in the forum or on the blog. Um, but, yeah, I think that the more times... The more, the more things get more complicated, the more you're going to see things like that. But I think you're going to have to realize if we're going to get anywhere with, you know, kind of a movement that's all-encompassing for all people, that we stop branding people with terms like liberal when we really don't know who the person is. And when we start talking about liberal and we're doing it with this very distasteful, uh, almost venom in our mouths, we're talking about people like Nancy Pelosi. I can tell you there's a lot of people out there that can consider themselves liberals, that sure as hell don't want that person in charge of our Congress. So I think we should just think a little bit more about the labels that we use. I pretty much have banned myself from using as a label the words liberal, conservative, Democrat, and Republican, because in government, I don't see a hill of beams of difference in them, and I no longer think that those people are representative of the people out here. So if somebody out here is a liberal, that doesn't mean they're aligned with Pelosi, and if someone's a conservative out here, it doesn't mean that they're aligned with, you know, a prominent Republican. So, I don't know. All I can tell you, though, is that your question is basically, yeah, because they already has happened. There's plenty of, you know, look at the electoral maps, and you'll see a giant swath of red throughout the middle of the country, uh, or blue, and, you know, you see your other color out on the peripherals. Um, 
So that's already there, and you'll see, like in states that, that go massively Republican overall, you'll see their major metropolitan areas still go uh, Democrat. So yeah, that's already happened. Um, next guy says, uh, "What can I do for long-term high-volume gas storage? Is it worth the risk?" And what he says is, I really need to store about 60 to 100 gallons uh, just to get the hell out of here if gas dries up and blows away. This is really a two-part question, so let me take it that way. Part one, long-term storage of gasoline. Great idea. If you have a space and you can afford the proper containment for it, do it. Best way I know to store gas long-term, if you own a pickup truck, is to get one of those toolboxes that basically have a great huge tank underneath them. That way your fuel's with your vehicle at all times. You can carry an awful lot of fuel in those. I think some of them go up into the 60-gallon range. Even if you don't, 60, 40 is a lot of extra fuel if you keep the truck full. Uh, number two, make sure you're stabilizing your gas with stable if you're if you're storing it for any length of time. All right. Then, if you have, like, say, one truck and one car, you have your gas storage on the back of your truck. Then you can consider adding some additional storage capacity in the home. These could be, you know, your jerry cans, your normal uh, gas cans, or larger containment systems, fuel grade barrels. Here's the thing about barrels: think about how are you going to get them up onto your vehicle. So they have a limited functionality. If your car is full and you have a 55-gallon drum of gasoline in your backyard, what are you going to do? You can't put it in the trunk of your car. So you need to really think about that. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And if you're not going to be bugging out, maybe it more, more, makes more sense to keep some extra fuel at your bug-out location or keep fuel at your primary location. And, yes, I do think it's worth the risk, as he referred to it, because I don't think it's that much of a risk if you store it properly in proper containers. Now, here's the other half of the question, and one that's a little bit more interesting to me. He said the reason he's worried about this is they have two vehicles, and... Um, they need about a thousand mile range because the closest people to them that would be able to help them out, a place they could stay with friends, is the Dallas area here where I live. Um, so they need to be able to make that thousand miles, and they're worried about making that thousand miles where there's no gas left. I, I hate to bust your bubble, but if there's no gas, like I understand no, no gas in your town, but then you could store 20 gallons per vehicle and you have, you know, three, 400 mile range easy, plus what's in the tank, right? So at that point, you should be far enough away from your area to be able to get some more gas on the way. And if you're in a situation where there is no gas available, 500 miles in between you and here, here is probably not going to have any either, and it's probably going to be the last place in the world you want to be. And Jack and his family are probably already in Arkansas and bugged out because that kind of scenario where there's no gas across the whole nation... That's where we're into civil disarray and breakdown and everything else. So if you were trying to get a 1,000 miles to a remote location in that scenario, I'd say, yes, sort it out, figure out how to do it. But if you're thinking you might have to go a 1,000 miles with no opportunity to get any gasoline to get from one major city to another, I think you need to think about the destination. I know that may not be what you want to hear, Um but I gotta tell you, I, I don't know where you're at, but let's say, you know, a thousand miles away from Dallas would be something like, oh, I don't know, Philadelphia is right around 900 miles. So halfway in between, you're looking at Tennessee. 
Um, if if there's no gas in Philadelphia and no gas in Tennessee, I can tell you there's probably not going to be any gas in Dallas, and then you've got a big problem. So you may want to rethink your overall plan. I, I and I, you know, again, I don't want to be too hard on anybody. I only get a little piece of your question because it's whatever was on your mind and however you formed the question when you sent it to me. There more, may be more at play here. This may be a rendezvous point to re, you know reach somebody that's already stocked up, and you guys are going on together somewhere else, that may be different. I still think you guys should be rendezvousing somewhere the hell other than Dallas, because while everything's breaking down, he's sitting here waiting for you, if that was the scenario. So I just think you need to rethink the whole scenario. Uh, question six today comes from a guy that spent some time serving with the Peace Corps, which thank you for your service there. I don't think we thank those guys enough. Uh, they give us a lot of service as well, just like your soldiers do, in a totally different way. Um, but they, they sacrifice a couple years of their lives, and they live in some pretty rough conditions in order to help others around the world. So if you ever talk to a Peace Corps volunteer, tell them thank you. And this individual, thank you. He says, what do you think about bug-out locations in a third world? And he did give me a lot of details. And um, he was speaking specifically of maybe having a bug-out location in Nicaragua. Now, his reasoning was pretty sound. Basically saying, these people already live with nothing. Uh, the shit hits the fan for them. They don't even. They won't even know. And it reminds me of what my grandfather said about the Great Depression, growing up in the Pennsylvania coal region. You know, he was a young man, uh, just starting a family when the depression started, and uh, he said, "One day they told us we had a depression. We didn't know any difference. Then one day we told us we had us a war. So I went off to war. And then I came home and they told me the depression was over, and I didn't notice any difference. And now it's 1985, and I still don't notice any difference." And I think he was right about that in a way about the, the coal region. It's pretty much just the way it always was. And uh, there is some truth to that, especially in a place like Nicaragua. I mean, they're already pulling water out of a river. They wash their clothes on rocks. And, I mean, I, I saw the same thing in Honduras. Right? These people, they wouldn't have known if we had the, the whole dollar burned down to zero at all. So... That is a legitimate point. If you live in some very remote part of the world where everybody's already dependent on the land and the natural resources that are there anyway, and they're not getting any outside support, pretty much life would go on. Maybe. Here's my caveat. You better do a damn deep amount of research into what's driving whatever local economy there is there. And you better be damn sure that it's not U.S. foreign aid. Because in many situations, you're out in the middle of nowhere and you think there is no economy. And there is an economy. And it's coming off of the nearest city or town. And that nearest city or town is almost 100% propped up by U.S. foreign aid. Or European foreign aid. There is some of that. The Europeans don't get enough credit for that as well. Um, and if that goes away, will it have a cascading effect? It'll probably be less of an effect, but don't think there won't be any. And those countries have a lot quicker breakdown into kind of a civil uh, disobedience. And when he said, one of the things he said is, since nobody has guns there, um, there's probably going to be less you know, armed violence. Well, let me tell you something. There's plenty of people with guns in Nicaragua. I also was in Nicaragua as a soldier, and I'm telling you, there's lots of guns in Nicaragua. And the day that um, there's a complete breakdown of the Nicaraguan economy, you'll see those guns come out. And um, the big problem then is that the civilians will have no way to defend themselves. So that could bite you on the other side as well. Now, it's true that Farmer Joe's not going to be running around stealing from Farmer Tom. And uh, that may be an advantage. So it's up to you whether you want to do that. Now, his big thing that he brought up, 
that I thought was a great point, and he brought it up himself, but I want to bring it out here too and give you my thoughts on it, was his biggest concern was what if the breakdown here is so fast that he can't get out of the country? And that is another big concern. If your bug out location requires requires you to cross international boundaries, um, that can be a real problem. And getting to Nicaragua, I guess it can be done by vehicle. Because the uh, transcontinental highway or whatever it is ends in the right before it hits Columbia at the end of Panama. So I guess you could get down there. But that's a hell of a place to be driving through while the shit is hitting the fan. All the way through southern Mexico, uh, Belize, etc. So you'd want to take a plane to get there quickly. And then you need to arrange for transportation when you're there. So in any remote location, you got to think about it that way. That's why I think so many people are big on setting up remote locations in the U.S. You don't have any international uh, travel to deal with. You can get in a vehicle, you can go, and if you're paying attention, you can jump early enough to avoid the biggest problems. Uh, that said, I do think there's merit to this idea. Everybody has to think for themselves and to their own. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all I can really say on that. My next question is actually my question. And I got my own answer last night. I learned about this on the Brew Crazy podcast. Johnny Max uh, told me about something called a black soldier fly. And my first question was, what is a black soldier fly? Well, a black soldier fly is really dadgone cool. What these things are is they're kind of a fly that looks a little bit like a little black wasp. Uh, But they don't sting or bite or do anything like that. They don't spread diseases. They don't even eat as adults. They only live for about 48 hours as adults. And all they do is lay eggs. And then these eggs produce these these, uh, larvae. And these larvae are ravenous eaters. They eat everything, including if you're growing them in this container that's made specifically for growing them in, They'll, if another fly gets in there and lays its eggs in like the, the garbage you're throwing in there, they'll eat the other fly's larva. So the, the, there's there's no danger of your your little uh, incubation project becoming smelly. In fact, these things eat so fast that the stuff you throw in there for them, before it can start to stink, they've already broken it down and started to eat it. Uh, they produce a huge amount of protein by biomass conversion, and a lot of aquaponics people um, use them for feeding their fish. Um, so that's one thing that they're good for is fish feed. They're also very good for poultry feed, and uh, they're a good way to break down waste. Now, they're not the greatest thing. Like, for worms, will break down and, and produce uh, a good fertilizer. They're not really that great for that because they're so efficient, there's very little left over. Um, I read a thing on them that said these little containers that are made to house them, you have to clean the container out about once every eight years for a family of four. So that tells you there's not a lot of leftovers uh, when they're done doing their job. And I think they're really cool, and I'll post some links about them. I just wanted to let some folks know about that, because I know we got a lot of people that keep poultry, and a lot of people are getting into raising their own fish. And everybody has waste to get rid of, and this is another way, other than composting, to get rid of your waste. And these things will eat anything. You can throw leftovers over meat and uh, dairy, and, and these, these things will take care of it as well. And they absolutely won't let any other flies in. Uh, they don't stink. And then they're self-harvesting. These containers have this wall with this spiral on them that's at a specific angle. And when these larvas are ready to pupate and go on to the next stage, they crawl up this friggin' ramp, and they fall in this hole, and they go into a little container. And you take that container, and you, you feed it to your fish or to your poultry, and they freeze well. So if you want to store up extras, because you have more than you need at any one time, uh, they can be stored as a form of feed. 
So these things just seem like really freaking cool and uh, something that maybe you want to check out. So I wanted to bring that up, even though it was my own question. Uh, another question was asked on our forum recently. Nobody's answered it yet, so I figured I'd do a little bit of an answer on the on the on air. Well, it's a typical question. What's the minimum amount of ammo you should keep on hand per weapon? And is there anything you can do to extend the storage life of ammunition? You don't need to do anything to extend the storage life of ammunition except store it safely. As long as you do that, it's going to store a very long time. I have 8mm ammunition that was made in the 1930s by the Turkish, which I'm sure didn't have the best quality control. Um, I get one misfire out of about 100 rounds with that stuff, and some of it is so bad you can literally pull the slugs out with your fingers. So uh, if that stuff's made it uh, the way that it's been stored, stored properly, uh, you're not going to have any shelf life uh, issues. Minimum amount of ammo is something that people will answer with a definitive statement, and I just think you are a freaking idiot because no one has that answer except the person that's storing the ammo and the weapons that understands their situation and their financial resources. I would say that you would be pretty well off, though, to start out with making sure you have at least 100 rounds of every caliber that you have a weapon for and then build from there and decide what you want. But I see people, you absolutely have to have 1,000 rounds per weapon. Well, who the hell says so? You know, who made you ammo guy? How do you know? You don't. So shut up. Stop telling people what you don't know. All right? I mean, really, I feel that way about some people that come across like that. Um, So... Again, this is something you have to think about for yourself. I would tell you that with if you have like a center fire that you see as a main defensive weapon, something you would carry in a total terminal breakdown, a thousand rounds is a great number uh, for your ammunition requirements. At least five hundred. And, and remember, minimum means just that minimum. So minimum is really one. All right, because if you don't have at least one bullet. Right for or one cartridge for those who are going to go. They're not bullets, Jack. That's I, shut up. Shut up, you people like that. It's not a it's not a mag, you clip. It's a magazine. Shut up. Everybody knows what we're talking about, right? Okay. So if you don't have at least one round of ammunition per weapon, that weapon is nothing more than a glorified club. So your absolute minimum is one. But think more in in the terms of it. Get to a hundred first for everything. Build from there. Your primary weapons try to get up to a thousand. Is my personal opinion, but you do what you want. If somebody wants to have 5,000 rounds or a thousand or 10,000 rounds of 7.62, um, you know, or, or what have you, or 2.23 or whatever, hey man, go ahead, more power to you. Uh, with the recent ammo shortages, that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is, well, how much shooting do you do? If you're a shooter and you shoot a lot, then obviously you need to have either more ammo or more components to reload more ammo than a person who just has the weapons in case and uses them occasionally for hunting. So it's a very personal uh, choice, and I've given you the best answer I can. Another person asked me, what, is, what are my thoughts on using Tupperware tubs for food storage? Because I've mentioned them, but you know they were under the impression that they're not airtight, uh, they're not very good light blockers and things like that. I think Tupperware tubs are great for food storage, as long as you're storing the right types of food in them. 
remember we always say store what you eat and eat what you store? That's what goes on your Tupperware tubs. The stuff that you're going to be rotating throughout the year, that by the end of the year, everything that went in that tub has come back out and been replaced. They're not a long-term food storage medium. But they're very convenient, and what I love about them is how nicely they stack so they're good for storage and how quickly they can be grabbed and stacked in vehicles so they're good for bugging out with a good quantity of food that's already packed and ready to go and hopefully labeled so you know what's in them. So used within their limits, they're a great way to do that. And having one or two tubs stocked up with you know long shelf life foods that you use anyway will get most people way past their first 30 days of food in the home. Because most people have at least a week in the just the basic pantry. Right, So if you have that and you have three weeks in a tub, then you've got your month. So I think they're great for that first step. As you move into long-term storage and you, you go past, you get maybe 60 days put away of eat what you store, store you eat, and now you're looking at putting things away like raw grains, uh, stuff that you might buy in, in bulk and dehydrate or what have you. Now you look at mylar, vacuum sealing, O2 absorbers, um, five-gallon buckets, it's with gamma seals, that type of thing. But until you get into that stage of your food storage, and remember, I don't think that's stage one. Stage one, 30 days of sustainability with food that you eat anyway. After that, then you look at those long-term methods. But initially, just to create a way to have the food accessible, stored, neatly stacked, uh, available to, to take with you, Rubbermaid tubs are one of the best things that I've found in my personal use for that. Uh, last question, and a pretty good one. Uh, the guy was talking to me by email and said, hey, I know you said not to uh, not to buy tactical shotguns, and that's not what I said. I'll, I'll cover what I said in just a second. But he was saying that, you know, you're better off with, the, you know, the common duck hunter shotgun or something for home defense because it's less likely that a prosecutor could hold it up in front of a jury and say, hey, look look at this, this man killer that this guy, this guy was a psychopath. Look, he had this, this chrome barreled, heat shielded, extended magazine, loaded up with, you know, number four buck, ready to kill anybody that came in his house. He was waiting for the opportunity. And I do think that's possible. And uh, I do think that there are, you know, prosecuting attorneys that would do that and would take that approach. It's one more hour in their quiver, so why give it to them? If you have to defend your home, fine. You take an 870 that's got buck in it or, you know, what have you, and you shoot somebody. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It has the same downrange effect. But his point was, you know, if 26, 28-inch barreled hunting shotgun. Uh, it's not really that good for home defense because it's big, it's bulky, it's harder to come around a corner with if you end up in a tactical situation. Is there a compromise? Absolutely. Go out and get you a, a Mossberg or a Remington, either one, the pump versions, the 870, the Mossberg, you know, I think it's a 500, whatever it is, and then go out and buy you a barrel for their youth model in 12 or 20 or whatever gauge. Those barrels are usually right at 22 inches in length. So now you get a very short, sport-looking shotgun. Pull the plug out. That's five rounds in the, the tube. You can throw one up the spout. That's six rounds. If you can't get a home defense, garden variety, home defense situation taken care of with six rounds a shot, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I also took a uh, heat because the first time I mentioned this, I said, throw number sixes in there or something. And, uh, you know, it, I was kind of in the spirit when I was doing that. You know what? You're a hell of a lot better off with number four buck. You really are. But I'll, I'll tell you what. Go out and get you some turkey loads. 
All right, and copper-plated BB uh, ammo. And uh, figure out the furthest distance you would ever have for a home shooting. Find the furthest point you can actually see somebody line of sight in your home. Go outside and pattern copper-plated BB out of a 3-inch Magnum. And uh, see what it does. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. Maybe you have a giant house that you can shoot 50 yards inside your house. Most people you're looking at less than 10 yards uh, that they would ever have in a home shooting. And uh, I sure wouldn't want to take a load of anything at 10 yards out of a shotgun. Uh, but number four bucks probably your best thing. I worry a lot with, with shotguns, though, the way homes are built today. And uh, these, 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 these very thin walls about over-penetration, though, with buck. And ending up shooting a bad guy and having one round of that pass through a wall and hit a baby sleeping in a crib. That's why I would hedge. You know what? You can have two rounds of the BBs. Um, so it's up to you what you want to do there. But that's my balance between the two. Now, I have nothing against tactical shotguns. I want to make that abundantly clear. If you want a tactical shotgun, buy one, use it, enjoy it. I just think that it has its place on the range. It has its place in service. And if the shit hits the fan, it's a great weapon to have for defense in a shit hit the fan scenario. But to me, that's where it really shines. Just like you wouldn't use your AR-15 is a home defense weapon because it's not the right tool for the one burglar breaking into your home, a good handgun, a short barrel shotgun, it's just a better tool for that. I just think that the tactical shotgun has too much potential to be used by an overzealous prosecutor in a home shooting. You make your own decision with that. You do what you want to with it. It's up to you. And that's how all the information in this show always is. I tell you what I think. You take the information. You take the pieces that you want. You use them, you take the pieces that you don't want and you discard them or you shelve them for later when maybe you're ready to revisit them. And uh, I think that's why the show's been successful because I'm not trying to ram any opinion down anybody's throat. So uh, with that, we're just about to the uh, office. We've made our 50-mile commute. show's about 40 minutes long, a great length for the show. And uh, so we're going to wrap up. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.